I wanted to share with you a hypothetical situation. Let's take a young man in his 20s who is healthy and strong, and he basically eats junk food all the time. And the only exercise he knows is the remote control, where he exercises fingers. And he says, look, all this nutrition and health and, and uh, exercise are just overrated. Look at me. I can even eat lard and nothing happens to me. Uh, I'm strong. And, and look at the condition of my body. I'm, I'm strong. Well, a few years go by, 10 or 15 years, and he's still strong. And he's still eating junk food and never exercises. And... He begins by that time, of course, convince himself that nothing is going to happen to him, that he is fine. And he continues in that destructive lifestyle, physically speaking. And by that time, of course, not only he convinced himself that he is right, he thinks that he is indestructible, that he is invincible. Nothing is going to happen to him. And of course, That goes on for a few more years, while internally, unseen by the human eye, is an internal destruction of the body that is taking place. And uh, But as far as he's concerned, he can't see a problem. He's doing fine. No problem at all. Until one day, his arteries begin to clog, and then he faces possible death. And some of you are probably saying, well, Michael, where are you going with this? (laughs) If I really want to get a lecture on nutrition and exercise, certainly I would go and see a professional and not you. And I agree with you, that's all right, but I just want you to humor me for a minute. Because what I want to submit to you this morning, that this is what can happen to every one of us individually as believers from a spiritual point of view. That is exactly what was happening to the believers in the church of Pergamum in the book of Revelation. Like the healthy young man in his 20s, they were paying no attention to what is happening internally. On the outside, everything looked great. So they're not paying any attention to the destructive lifestyle that is taking place. From the outside, they say, everything is going great. But what is happening on the inside was very serious. The believers in Pergamum looked at themselves and saw themselves to be biblically healthy from the outside. But their lifestyle was tolerating what is wrong. On the outside, they looked okay. But on the inside, they were tolerating a lifestyle of rationalizing a slow but deadly spiritual cancer. On the outside, everything appeared well, and nobody could tell the difference. But on the inside, they were ignoring the danger of the spiritual plaque buildup inside of them. From the outside, everything looked all right. But on the inside, they were paying no attention whatsoever to the little but deadly bacteria that was growing inside their bodies. And that is why the all-seeing, the all-knowing physician, the great physician, 
penetrating eyes, as we see in the passage, says to them, be careful, be forewarned, there is danger, you are in the middle of it, it's taking place, it's in your midst, and the fact that nothing has happened so far should not convince you that you're going to get away with it. And he, the great physician, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, is saying to them, and is saying to us, that if you continue on the road to compromise, sooner or later, you're going to face the sharp scuffle. If you continue on the road of turning a blind eye to the growing cancer inside of you, sooner or later, you will have to get under the sharp knife If you continue on the road of undisciplined spiritual life, sooner or later you will face the serious consequences. If you continue on the road of just wanting to go along to get along, sooner or later you may even face destruction. That's what the risen Christ is saying to every one of us. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeals to them. He appeals to us to change our lifestyle now before it's too late. Change it now while you can. And if they do repent, he said the reward is going to be far greater than you can imagine. But if you refuse to repent, the judgment is going to be greater. I want you to hear me right, please. This is very important. This warning is to every individual believer. It's a warning to me. This warning is to every church. To every pastor, to every teacher, as to everyone who claims to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so with that introduction, let us read together the very words of the resurrected Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. The last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Here's what Jesus is saying. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan resides. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Father, it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I come pleading with you that you will hide me from the scene and that you allow the Holy Spirit to take over 
and that every word that I speak would not be mine, but would be inspired of you, because this is your word that I am proclaiming, from your word, the written word of God. And I pray that you will open our eyes, that you open our ears, that, Father, we will be changed, men and women, boys and girls, for Jesus' sake. Amen. There are three things here that loom large in this message that the resurrected Jesus Christ is speaking to the believers in the city of Pergamum. Three things. Taking notes, write them down. First, you see Christ's diagnosis of the situation. Secondly, you see the resurrected Christ's disappointment with His servants. And thirdly, you see Christ's decision concerning the saints. Number one, the great physician diagnoses the situation. Pergamum was about a hundred miles north of Ephesus. In fact, Smyrna was halfway between Ephesus and Pergamum. And you'll see how it is almost a circle that a mailman who's delivering these messages would have been making a circle. First in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Next week we see Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. Almost a full circle if you draw a circle around these cities. And so Smyrna was really about halfway between Ephesus and Pergamum. Pergamum was a city that was built on a hill. It was about 1,000 feet high above the plain. Pergamum contained the second largest library in the world. It was second only to the great library of Alexandria. In the library of Pergamum, there were more than 200,000 handwritten volumes in that library. More than that, Pergamum was the home and the center of emperor worship. You see, in other cities... Most of the worshipers of the emperor, they offered sacrifice to the emperor once a year. In Pergamum, it was once a day. Now, you can figure that out for yourself of how incredible the pressure, how intense the pressure for the believers to compromise and play games with their minds and their heads with their pagan neighbors. Just imagine the intensity of the temptation that they were facing. So... Here is that daily pressure. And Jesus said, I know. I know. The Lord Jesus said, I know where you live. You know, sometimes you see in the movie when somebody said, I know where you live. That's a threat. Hey, I'm going to get you. No, no, no. It's not that here. (laughs) Jesus is not threatening them at all. He said, I know where you live, meaning I know your circumstances. I know the difficulties that you are facing. I know the constant temptation that you are under. I know you live where Satan has set his throne. I know you live where Satan lives. I know the pressure that you are under. Let me tell you something, beloved friend. There is not a single pressure. There is not a single temptation. There is not a single difficulty in your life that the Lord Jesus Christ does not know and does not understand. And He sympathizes with you. And He's calling you to Himself. He wants to give you His strength so that you you can stand. And he says to them, he said, I know where you live. I know your difficulties. I understand your circumstances. You're not alone. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ said to those people, that center of emperor worship, he said, I know, I know, I know, I know. 
Isn't that wonderful to know that the Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what's bothering you today? He knows exactly what frightens you today. He knows exactly what is making you anxious today. He knows exactly where you are. And this city was not only the center of emperor worship. (laughs) That would have been bad enough. But also it was the center of the worship of the god Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And he was depicted as a snake. Now, some of you in the medical profession, you understand, you've seen it in emblems of pharmaceutical emblems and, and medical emblems. You see the snake, that is the god of healing. That's Asclepius. You see, that is the ancient god of Pergamum. And this imagery of a snake was a constant reminder for the believers of the devil. It was a constant reminder of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who is constantly want to lead them astray. In fact, in that temple of Asclepius, in, the, uh, in that town of Pergamum, Travelers, these poor people traveled from all over Asia Minor and even Europe, and they come all the way to the temple. And on the floor of the temple, there was a lot of non-poisonous snakes. And these people come, and they lie on the floor of the temple, hoping that they'll be touched by one of those snakes. I'm telling you, I can't stand those, I just can't stand those creatures. In heaven, I'm going to find out why they were created. <laughs> Here they are, traveling this long distance to come to lie on the floor of the temple so that hopefully one of those snakes would touch them because they thought that was healing. But you see, this is why it is the throne of Satan. Because God is Jehovah Rapha. God is our healer. But Satan says, no, I'm your healer. I'm the snake. I'm the one who can touch you and you'll be healed. And he was sitting his throne in Pergamum against the throne of God. And so, these poor Christians who were living in Pergamum, living under these difficult circumstances, surrounded by all this intense pressure, They're living literally in the city that is Satan's throne. And yet in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of this intense pressure, they remain faithful. The believers continue to hold on to biblical truth. They continue to hold on to sound biblical doctrine. They continue to hold fast to the name of Christ. They never denied their faith, so much so that one of their leaders, Antipas, was martyred right before their own eyes, and Jesus even mentions him by name. You see, the faithful believers in Pergamum remain true to their biblical convictions under some of the most difficult circumstances. I wonder how we're doing when we have, we have it easy, comparatively speaking. And that is why the resurrected Christ commends him for that. You see, he didn't start by saying, look, here's a problem. (laughs) He started with praise. He started with commendation. He started by diagnosing the situation and he said, hey, you're doing something right, and I'm glad. Hey, this this is great. I'm proud of you. You're doing exactly the right thing. Keep on doing it. Don't stop. Don't flip and flop. Don't change. Just stay where you are. 
But secondly comes the disappointment. The disappointment of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What was it? What was Jesus' disappointment? Now I'm going to put it bluntly so that you can understand it because this is the very sin that is dominating our culture today. And unfortunately, even those who love the Lord Jesus Christ inadvertently, unknowingly, have fallen in that sin. What is it? I want to give it to you bluntly. Are you ready for it? Say amen. Amen. We should not be judgmental of others. That's it. We should not be judgmental of the sin of others. Well, after all, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Let me tell you something. Jesus was talking about judging motivation. I have no right to judge anyone's motive. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And the whole Bible from cover to cover talks about judging sin. And so, they were saying, we shouldn't judge anybody. We shouldn't sit in judgment over their sinful lifestyle. We shouldn't call sin, sin. We shouldn't call error, error. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't call false teaching, false teaching. Let's just keep our mouths shut because we don't want to be judgmental. I want to share with you something that I've learned through the years. And by the way, I've learned it the hard way. There's nothing that I've learned was the easy way. I don't know why, but it seemed the Lord takes me through some tough times in order to teach me some lessons, maybe so I can share them with you and make your life easier. Here's what I've learned through the years. When a person says, we should not judge sin, we should not sit in judgment of somebody else's sin or a group of people's sin, that person is not judging sin in his or her own life. Now, if you do not judge sin in your life and judge it in the life of others, the Bible called that hypocrisy. <laughs> but the only judgment that anyone can have is the person who knows how to first judge sin in his own life. And the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, he said, we need to judge our own sin lest we be judged. See, you've got to start with yourself. I've got to start with myself. You know, when I'm getting ready to meet somebody to talk about an issue in their life, the Lord in heaven only knows I fast, I pray, I repent, I go through a cleansing process. I am conscious of my own sinfulness. I am conscious of my own weaknesses. And I come to that person not with arrogance, but in brokenness and in humility. Why? Because the Lord taught me to judge sin in my life first, to examine my own heart, and to bring sin in my life into judgment first before I can talk about, listen to me very carefully, whenever you have an unconfessed sin, whenever you have a hidden sin, whenever you have a sin that you are refusing to repent of, and you are refusing to take it to the blood of Jesus Christ, you have no intention of judging somebody else because you're worried lest your sin is judged. So we cover up and say, oh, we shouldn't be judging anybody's sin. We shouldn't be judging anybody's sinful lifestyle. We shouldn't be judging anything. We shouldn't be judging. But beloved, when judgment of sin begins in my life, then I'm only in a position to say, this is what the Word of God said. 
That's what you're doing. And the two are contradictory. Only the one who can call sin, sin in his and her own life will be able to call sin, sin in somebody else's life. So what was going on in the church in Pergamum? There was a sin in their midst and was breaking the heart of Jesus. It was not affecting their intellectual faith in Jesus Christ. It was not affecting the sound biblical doctrine. It was not affecting their belief in Christ. But the all-seeing, all-knowing, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ said, I have a few things against you. And here it is. You are winking at some in your midst who are compromising with sin. You are turning a blind eye to someone in your midst who is teaching wrong and false teaching. You are tolerating those in your midst who are turning grace into license to sin. And Jesus said this kind of sin began with Balaam in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, and 24. And what Jesus is saying is, what Balaam started in the Old Testament, book of Numbers, Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons in the book of Acts, selected to serve the church, is continuing, is perpetuating in the New Testament. It's a one and only sin. Has different dress, more than 2,000 years apart, it's the same sin. Balaam was a prophet for hire. (laughs) Balaam was a prophet who was willing to do anything for money. Balaam was a prophet who was available to the highest bidder. And so when the king of Moab wanted to curse the children of Israel because they were going to go through his land to get into the promised land, and he didn't want them to come through, so he said, I'll find me a prophet for hire. I'm going to pay him a bunch of money, and I'm going to ask him to curse the children of Israel. So he goes and offers this guy a ton of money. And Balaam looks at that money and said, man, I know these are God's chosen people. I know that God promised to take them into the promised land, but that's too much money to leave at the table. And so he says, okay, I'll do it. And he goes in there and he starts wanting to curse the people of Israel. Every time it's a curse, he says, bless. He couldn't come out of his mouth. So every time he tries to curse them, he blesses them. Every time he tries to curse them, he blesses them. Until his donkey talked to him. He said, you dummy. That's a rough translation, but that's what it means. He said, can't you see the angels stopping you? And so Balaam said, well, I can't. You know, the Lord took control of my mouth, and I can't curse them. Every time I try to curse them, I bless them. And what do I do? So he came up with an ingenious scheme to entice the children of Israel to sin. And rebel against God. He came to the king of Moab. He said, you know, king, I got a deal for you. Because you got a lot of money right now. Because every time he wouldn't curse, the the king would up the ante. It's more money. More money. More zeros into the check. And so by that time, his heart was sold. He said, man, I I can't walk away from that pile of cash. He said, I got a deal for you, king. I'll tell you what you need to do. Get your immoral women... And send them over to the Israelites, and they're going to entice the Israelite men to commit immorality with them, and that way you really destroy them. He's a diabolical, a diabolical prophet. And you see, that's why the resurrected Jesus Christ was mentioning him by name. It's diabolical. Because the most dangerous people 
are the people who are inside the church of Jesus Christ. The ones who claim the name of Jesus Christ, but then they teach falsehood. They're dangerous. And the Bible said they'll be judged more severely than others. And so, God, because of his righteousness, clicked his fingers and 24,000 Israelite men died on the spot because of their sin. And so what Balaam was in the Old Testament, Nicholas was in the New Testament. False prophet. False minister. So what is the Lord saying to them? Hear me right, please. Is what the Lord's saying to you today. Is what the Lord's saying to me today. It's exactly what he's saying to us. He's saying to all of us who are afraid of being judgmental. Listen to me. Here's what he's saying. Be forewarned. Be forewarned of growing sin in your life. Be forewarned of a growing sin in the body's life. Be forewarned of sin. You see, when somebody tells you that you can't help it being addicted to pornography, and they say to you, you don't need to repent because you cannot help it, the grace of God is going to cover it. That's the sin of Balaam. That is the sin of Nicholas. When somebody tells you you can't help it being homosexual, you don't need to worry about it. The grace of God is going to cover it all. You don't need to repent. That's the sin of Balaam and Nicholas. If somebody tells you well, you can't help it, breaking your marriage vows, the grace of God is going to cover it all, just keep going. That's the sin of Balaam and Nicholas. When somebody says to you, you're drunk, but you can't help it, the grace of God will cover it all, just keep going, don't repent. That's the sin of Balaam and Nicholas, and I can go on forever. You know the rest of it. You know the rest of it. They were saying, oh, don't be a fanatic. Don't be extremist. Don't be a legalist. Don't be a judgmentalist. Don't be a fundamentalist. Don't be idealistic. After all, we're all human. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for their hatred to the sin of the Nicolaitans. And I told you when I preached from Ephesians, I said, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to explain it in detail at Pergamum. And that's why I did today. Jesus said, you hate that sin. And he said, I do too. I hate that sin. And what the Lord Jesus Christ hates, what the Ephesians hated, but what the Lord Jesus Christ hated, the church in Pergamon, the believers in Pergamon, welcomed. And the resurrected Christ said, there is only one way to remedy sin. There is only one way to remedy sin. There is only one way to remedy sin. You say, well, I cannot. Oh, yes, you can. There is one way to remedy sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is repentance. It is turning. It is coming back to the Lord for forgiveness and for confession. You see, the remedy to sin is not to discuss it. It's not to excuse it. It's not to say, well, it's my father and my mother and my grandfather did it. My, and I can. Listen, it is not to rationalize it. It's not to explain it away. No, it's to repent of it. You see, God made a way for a remedy of sin. And here the gracious, merciful Lord Jesus gives them one more opportunity to turn to Him. One more opportunity. And God been speaking to you 
And he's giving you one more opportunity. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? That opportunity may never return again. May never come back again. It's my plea with you that you receive it graciously and turn to him. Because the Lord Jesus Christ goes on to tell them that they basically have two choices. And all choices have consequences. He said, you have two choices. Choice number one, do not repent of your sin. Continue in your sin. Continue making the grace of God to be a license to sin. And in that case, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of my, the sword of the Word of God, the sword of judgment, the words of judgment are going to fall upon them. The sharp to edge sword. Why? Because Jesus will not allow falsehood to prevail in his true church. Jesus will not allow the cancer of compromise to grow in his own church. The great physician, the all-seeing physician, has to operate. And like that hypothetical case that we looked at at the beginning of the message, of this healthy young man who cannot see Sin growing, danger growing inside of him. There are so many Christians who are into sin, whatever area of your sin is. And they go on for a month or two, a year or two, um, two years, three years, maybe ten years. And nothing happens. And they begin to say to themselves, just like that young man, nothing is going to happen to me. Obviously, God doesn't care about this. Obviously, God doesn't worry about this. Obviously, I'm okay. And then they began to rationalize that sin, unknowing that it is because of the mercy of God and because of the patience of God and because of the long-suffering of God that nothing happened to you, that nothing happened to me. Not because you could get away with it, but because of the patience of God. It's incredible patience. And every time I kind of get angry with God about being patient with people that I want Him to get... Have you ever been there? You know what the Lord does? He reminds me that He's been patient with me. And then I go back. I said, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. Because you're patient. You're long-suffering. And I'm grateful for that. And so should you. But don't do what the Apostle Paul says this to the Romans. He said, don't confuse His patience. Don't confuse His long-suffering. Don't confuse the fact that he doesn't judge you immediately for weakness on his part or acquiescence on his part. No, 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 no. He is wooing you. He's calling you. He's pleading with you. He speaks to you through his word. He speaks to you through friends. He speaks to you through preachers. He speaks to you through small group leaders. He speaks to you through your Sunday school teacher. He speaks to you. And then he said if you Choose to repent. If you make that choice and turn and come and ask for forgiveness, you'll have two rewards. The hidden manna and the white stone. What are they? You remember in the book of Exodus, as the people of God came out of the slavery of Egypt, they ended up in the wilderness. And there was no food. There was no drink. There was, God had to provide food for them, the food of heaven, the food of angels. He provided them with manna from heaven. They wake up every morning and it's rain food. 
So they take it, and they eat it for the rest of the day. Every morning, new mercies I see. Every morning. And he said, if you hoard it, if you hide it, it's going to become putrefaction right in your own hands. Why? Because God wanted them to be dependent on him every single day. And so, before they got into the promised land, God said, get a jar and get some of that manna and seal it in a jar. And in the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were placed, he said, place that jar. That's what's called the hidden manna. In order to remind them of the mercies of God, to remind them of, of the intervention of God in history in their lives. And of course, that was a shadow of the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. That hidden manna is no other than the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying that when you repent of your sin, when you judge your sin, when you come in repentance, when you come clean with God, he's going to give no less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What about the white stone? The athletes, particularly in that town, understood. For every winning athlete, when he wins, when he gets a victory, he receives a white stone with his name written on it. That was very prized possession. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, for every winning, victorious, non-compromising child of mine, I'm going to give them a stone, but not just a name written on it. A new name is going to be written on it. You say, why a new name? You have to have a new identity. When God called people into a special ministry, He changed their name. So Abraham became Abraham, and Jacob became Israel, and Cephas became Peter, and Saul became Paul. It's an indication of a new identity in Christ. You have a spiritual name. You have a new name. You have a name that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you, and you and He are the only two people who know it. And He is going to give it to you engraved on the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Father, I'm amazed at Your patience. I'm amazed at Your grace. I'm amazed of your perseverance with me. I'm in awe, Lord Jesus, that you did not strike me or strike any of us the moment we got away from you and we thought we could get away with it. Father, I bless your holy name. But, oh God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that our eyes be opened this very moment, that our ears will be opened at this very moment that we realize that your patience and your perseverance will have a limit and that we may walk in light while it is still day. Father, I pray that you touch your people. You know the hearts. We don't even know our own hearts, but you know us, Lord Jesus. And so I ask you in the name of Jesus that you will come through the Holy Spirit. Visit every trembling heart, every repentant heart, Receive our repentance, for we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.